in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're in verse 1. In the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Daniel's right after the book of Ezekiel. Like that helps a whole lot, right? (laughs) We do have Bibles to give you. If you don't own a Bible, we've got Bibles at the door. We'd love for you to have that as a gift to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this community, for Colorado Springs. And we do pray for the schools as they get started, Lord, that your spirit would be working, that you'd bless the teachers and the administration. And as we start the book of Daniel, Father, would you really bless it? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? And even this morning, that we would be open to the things that you would want to speak to us. We thank you that you have a plan for our lives. We also thank you that you are moving among the nations and you're the God who reigns sovereign. So we look to you. We invite your Holy Spirit. Would you please send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth? In Jesus' name, amen. Between two worlds, we find Daniel in this place where he's a young man. He's been taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. They're trying everything possible for him to forget his heritage, to forget his roots, to serve Nebuchadnezzar, but he knows that he's a child of the king. I think that this book really applies to us as we are praying about what book of the Bible to go into next. We're really challenged about how to live out a godly life in an ungodly culture. Just like Daniel, we're between two worlds. And what's so encouraging about this book is it really shows us that God can use believers that are committed to him, that are surrendered to him. Let's get a little bit of background uh, for this book before we jump into it this morning. First is, can we say absolutely who the human author is? Who did God use to pen the book of, of, of Daniel? And surprisingly, there's some controversy about this, but we do know that it is Daniel. As we'll go further into the book, into chapter 8 and 9 and 10, Daniel refers to himself. He says, I, Daniel, write. Most of the book is written in third person, but he does refer to himself. Jesus clears up the issue. In Matthew 24, he tells us that Daniel wrote the book. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which we'll get to later in our study of Daniel, spoken by Daniel the prophet. So if Jesus tells us that Daniel wrote the book, that's enough for me. I don't know if that's enough for you, but that's more than enough for me. The date is 6th century that this was written. We know that from the events that are listed in the book. There's lots of dates that are given to us in the book of Daniel. Daniel, interestingly enough, is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, where the rest of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And that shows Daniel's background. He's Hebrew. He writes in Hebrew, but he's also living in Babylon, so he writes in Aramaic. What's the purpose of the book? Why has this book been written and given uh, to us? Is I think it really shows us a practical message that I've always appreciated about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is how to live godly in an ungodly culture. Very practical lessons to look at their walk with God, their prayer life, their integrity, and learn from that example. 
but also there is a prophetic element to the book of Daniel. It's probably the largest book of prophecy that we have in the Bible. So we're going to be looking and studying at these prophecies together. It seems as soon as we mention prophecy that people get nervous. They're like, oh no, what's going to happen? What, what road are we going down in our church? Because there is a lot of abuse of biblical prophecy. There's a lot of harebrained ideas that's been thrown into this bucket of prophecy. Relax, we're not going to do that. We're going to be looking at these prophecies from a clear understanding. This is what it says. This is what it means. This is what we do know. This is what we don't know. But please don't be afraid of biblical prophecy because it shows us the infinite wisdom of God. These prophecies in, in Daniel are amazing. Daniel prophesied things that regarded kingdoms before they ever happened. And we're able to look back on that. And yet there's also prophecy that will be fulfilled in the future. In Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The prophecy in the Bible is leading up to Jesus and testifying of Jesus Christ. Historical background of this book is is really important. And so bear with me for just a moment. Have you ever been studying the Old Testament or reading the Old Testament and trying to fit it together chronologically is very difficult? Because our English Bible is not set up in a chronological order. So you have the, the kings and the chronicles going with prophets. And certain prophets lived as the same time as certain kings. If you ever want to study this uh, in a more fluid way, pick up a chronological Bible from the bookstore or from Amazon and read through the Old Testament. And they've done the work uh, for you. But some key things to understand is first, Israel split into two kingdoms. After Solomon died, as a result of Solomon's sin, Israel divided. It, it split. And you have the northern ten tribes, which the Bible refers to as Israel. So sometimes when you see the name Israel in the Old Testament, it, it's referring to all twelve tribes. And then other times it's referring to just these ten tribes. Then the bottom two tribes, known as Judah, were the southern kingdom. So from that point forward in the Old Testament, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and attack the northern kingdom. Some of the Israelites are taken out of the land, some remain in the land, other countries come into the northern part of Israel and assimilate. Then you still have the southern part of Israel called Judah that is taken captive in a series of attacks from Nebuchadnezzar. We start the first of those this morning in our Bible study. 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he attacks Jerusalem, taking Daniel captive. Comes back in 597 BC, takes Ezekiel, the prophet, captive. Comes in 588 BC, sieges Jerusalem for two years. In 586 BC, the temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. So that gives a little bit of background Maybe that was like wah, 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 Okay, let's get into the study. But please know this. Israel did separate into two kingdoms, and it does apply uh, to our study this morning. So let's look at verse 1 together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We know more about Jehoiakim from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet that's speaking into this time period. 
And Jehoiakim was raised up by the Pharaoh of Egypt. There was this alliance between Judah and Egypt to try to resist the king of Babylon. And Jeremiah, he was saying, look, this is God's correction. This is God's judgment. You need to go with the king of Nebuchadnezzar. You need to not fight this judgment that is taking place. Jehoiakim had a really hard heart towards God. Jeremiah is giving God's message to give to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim cuts it up and throws it in the fire really quickly saying, I don't want to have anything to do with God's message for me. So Jeremiah writes it down a second time. So this king, King Jehoiakim, is taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar on the third year, which is 605 BC, the first of those three attacks that take place. The first thing to write down and to note about this is God disciplines those he loves. This is more than just a military attack or a military maneuver by Nebuchadnezzar. God had been speaking to the children of Israel through Jeremiah that this was a result of their idolatry. This was a result of them breaking God's commands. Jeremiah spoke and he said that Israel had committed two evils. They'd forsaken the living God and hewn for themselves cisterns that can produce no water. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the Kings and the Chronicles, you see Israel had no godly king, the northern ten tribes. But Judah did have some godly kings. But there is this propensity to always go back to idolatry. And God gets to this point, this point in the the book of Daniel, where he says, okay, now's time for consequences. You're ultimately going to be taken out of your land for 70 years because I love you, and I want to correct you. This was a big deal for the children of Israel. If you remember, God told Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land, a chosen people with a promised land. Joshua leads them in to the promised land 400 years later, and now they're going to be taken out of the land because of their idolatry. God is extremely patient, long-suffering in his correction. Think about what I just said. Generations in idolatry. God warning, calling back to repentance. They do for a period. Go back to idolatry. With the idolatry was always connected sexual sin. With these false gods would go to these temples and engage in sexual sin. And God, being very patient, saying, look, I'm calling you back to myself. Isaiah, who lived before Jeremiah, called the nation of Israel out. And God says that, He was tired. He was sick of their assemblies. Could you imagine God giving a message to Rocky Mountain Calvary saying, you know, I'm kind of sick of your songs. I'm tired of your burnt offerings. I'm tired of your gifts. I don't don't want your, your money. And the reason was the children of Israel would continue in worship, but then they would go live a pagan life. They would live just like those who weren't the people of God. And it was because of their idolatry that God then spoke and said, I'm tired of your worship. God was wanting loyalty. He was wanting true dedication out of the children of Israel. So God's correction, when it comes into our lives, is long-suffering. It comes slowly, but when it does come, it's thorough. It's very complete, Uh, This is very drastic for God to take the children of Israel ultimately out of Jerusalem and allow Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed. 
So in our lives this morning, we need to know if we're the child of God, God is not content with our lives looking like those that don't know Christ as our Savior. He's wanting us to be set apart. He's wanting us to be devoted to him. Not out of some legalistic heavy trip, but because he's our father, he's our savior. So if we're walking in willful rebellion to God, if we're playing a game, you know, we get some kind of comfort out of coming to church on Sunday morning, but we're more than happy of having our lives just just look like anybody else that doesn't know Christ as their savior, If you're God's child and God's spirit lives inside of you, because God loves you, because he loves me, he's going to correct us. This was God's means of bringing his people back to himself. And it's really up to us how hard it's going to get. My pastor growing up, he would say, when you receive Christ as your savior, you surrender to him as Lord, there is an unconditional love that's been placed around you in Christ. And you can test that. And you can test that. You'll come back. But the question is, how hard, right? So why are you testing the rubber band? Why am I testing the rubber band? Wouldn't it be much better this morning to surrender to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, than to continue to walk in disobedience and rebellion to the Lord? This doesn't have to happen. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have to come in and take the articles from the temple and take the king and take Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not every trial in life is because of God's correction. Some is just part of living in this world, but there's other times where we know we're in rebellion to the Lord and we're bringing unnecessary consequences into our hearts and our lives. God disciplines those he loves. This is seen again in verse 2. Then the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God when he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the articles into the treasure of the house of his God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim God's correction clearly from the hand of God. Here goes this hard-hearted king taken captive to, to Babylon but also the articles in the temple. Do you think God was trying to get a message to Judah? You don't value the articles of the temple. You don't value the temple. Yeah, you'll come to a worship service, but you won't devote yourself fully and completely to me, so God allows these articles to be taken out of the temple. Sometimes God in his love will withhold intimacy with us, not because he's mad, but because he's light and he can't dwell with darkness. And it's a way of drawing me back to him. Or, God, I miss those articles of the temple. I miss worship. I miss closeness with you. And the Lord's saying, okay, Eric, well, th- then deal with this area of your life. And I think God very clearly allows these articles to be taken. Keep in mind, these articles are going to show up later in the book of Daniel, and God's going to use them to make a really powerful point. In verse 3, the king instructed... As Panaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, gives command to the chief eunuch to go through Jerusalem 
to find the young men who were descendants of the king. The young men that had no blemish, the ones that were handsome, had ability to learn, bring them, kidnap them, and bring them to Babylon for the king's service. This included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Write this down. The world attempts to steal the very best of you. Nebuchadnezzar, to me, is an example of the world system. Babylon is an example of the world system. What what do I mean by the world system? Not the physical earth, the physical universe. First John tells us that the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Satan uses the world system. So the world system is going to target the very best of you. Why was Judah susceptible to this? Because they'd walked away from God. They were in idolatry. When we walk away from God as God's people, we make ourselves vulnerable to the world system and the enemy coming in a greater way to take the very best of you. See, Satan wants the best of your marriage and he wants to destroy it completely. Satan wants the best of your children and he'll do his utmost He'll take his greatest attempt to go after the hearts and minds of your children. The enemy would love for us to be so caught up in the world system that the world system, the lust of the eyes, the lust in the flesh, and the pride of life takes the best of our resources, the best of our time, the best of our talents. This is very clear from Nebuchadnezzar. He knows if he can get young people to be devoted to his agenda, he's going to have impact throughout the world. As he's conquering the world, he's gathering the best of young people. The enemy's always after the best of us. I think systematically the world goes after our kids. High school students, college students, middle school students, pay attention to this. God wants you to be the next Daniel. God wants you to be surrendered fully to him, but also the king of Nebuchadnezzar wants you to be committed to him as well. As I look at the way our society works, this world's agenda invests a lot of time and a lot of money to get the hearts of young people because they understand that change is only one generation away. Change actually happens pretty quickly if you can just get the next generation. 30, 40, 50 years go by and you've changed society, you've changed culture. We think about the potential smart cars coming on the market. Now, if you're my generation or older, how do you feel about not driving and allowing technology to drive for you? No way, right? I am not giving up control and allow this machine to to drive for me. What if for some reason there's a glitch in the technology and all of a sudden you have this accident? What if terrorists decide to hijack the whole system and all these cars crash and there's all these deaths at at once? We're like, I'm not giving up that that independence, right? But if you're 25 or younger, you're probably going, that sounds pretty good, right? Because if I'm not driving and technology's driving for me, that's going to give me more time on my phone. (laughs) And while you old fogies are driving, I'm changing the world, I'm ruling the world. I can be more efficient. My work day can start when I get in the car 
instead of when I get to a building, it, it's only one generation away. I talk to young people, and they say, I'm not really too interested in driving. Say, have you got your license yet? Nah, are you going to get your license? Ah, I don't know. What did we do when we turned 16? We were at the DMV that, that day, right? It's just one generation away. At some point, I'm going to be sitting with my grandkids going, I used to drive myself. <laughs> and your grandma let me, right? <laughs> now let's look at a little bit more of a serious issue. God's teaching on sexuality. That marriage is between a man and a woman, male and female. What did culture think about that two generations ago? Marriage was between a man and a woman. That was the understanding. That was the understanding in my grandparents' generation. But culture's understanding is not that today. It happened pretty quickly, didn't it? The enemy is always after the very best of us. So we want to be a, a church that guards your own life personally. We want to guard our youth. We want to invest in junior high and high school and the, and the college, the children's ministry and understand what's at stake. We don't want to drift from the Lord. We want to press into the Lord. Aren't we tired of the enemy getting the best of us? Aren't we tired of the enemy getting the best of our families? Saying something's got to be different. It's as a result of our relationship with God. As we're walking with the Lord, that's our best protection. And continuing in verse 4, And whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans... And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. What was the goal of all of this? That at the end of the three years they would serve King Nebuchadnezzar. They would forget where they came from, forget that they were Hebrews, forget that they were children of the one true living God, and they would be vessels in the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. The world pursues indoctrination. The world system is after the best of us, but also is trying to indoctrinate us. How? Well, first, that we would know the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that language is always being pushed upon us. That literature is always being pushed upon us. To be immersed in that and begin to accept it to where we don't even know what the word of God says and begin to filter those things through God's word. But also there was great provision. Imagine these young men coming from Jerusalem. We've got some indications of the possible age of Daniel. Because we know that he at least lived till 539 BC. He's alive when the decree is given by Cyrus the king for them to go back and rebuild the temple. If he was 16 when he was taken captive, you do the math, he would have been 85 at that point. He could have been anywhere between 10 and 16 years old. What are young men motivated by? Food. I mean, right? And here comes the most powerful man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, here's my table. Here's the filet mignon. Here's the bacon cheeseburgers. Here's some wine. Here's some Americanos and lattes. I mean, this was the best food that the world had to offer 
a daily feast that was provided for them. And that's part of the indoctrination. The world's saying, here's this feast. Just go ahead, give in to the appetite of your flesh. Here it is. Why, why, why go against culture? Why, why be worried about this? And Daniel's, we'll see next week, him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the wisdom to reject this daily feast because it was in, against God's command as Jewish men to eat this food. It was against the diet, the kosher diet that God had called them to. Three years of training, they're isolated. Isolated from their families, isolated from their friends, from their heritage, and they've got three years of intense training to get them to that place where they're indoctrinated. This may surprise you, but where I'm most concerned about the world's indoctrination in our culture, in our society, yes, I'm concerned about it outside the church. That concerns me greatly. Concerned about it in our universities, in our schools, and media. But I'm most concerned about it inside the church because I think it's most deceptive. Because you expect this from unbelievers, but you don't expect this inside of the walls of a church. Not all churches, there's a lot of great, healthy churches that are holding to God's word. But there's many churches that are getting indoctrinated, that are adopting the world system to the point where they're taking the world's teaching and then they're spinning it to say that it's God's teaching. What do I mean? You'll find a lot of churches that will teach theistic evolution. What does that mean? That God created evolution and the world was created through an evolutionary process. Well, does that line up with Genesis chapter 1? No, when you read Genesis 1, it's very clear. God spoke the world into existence. He created it. It wasn't an evolutionary process, but you'll find churches that teach that. You'll find churches that teach a universalist salvation. What does that mean? Jesus died for everyone, thus everybody saved, without repenting and believing and accepting Jesus as their Lord. You will find, like I mentioned, a lot of churches that are going to throw out God's message on sexuality. And say, marriage isn't between a man and a woman. That's so old-fashioned. God's a God of love, and so all he cares about for marriage is that two people are committed to each other. It can be men with men or women with women. And they say that in Jesus' name. They say that that is, is God's blessing. And I don't know about you, but I think we could be a lot further down this road of indoctrination than we even think, right? And it's affected the church, and this message is going throughout the church. And please don't misunderstand me. This isn't hate language. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I believe that God's message on sexuality is really good. I think God knew that we would test it. So in Genesis 1, he says, I created them in my image, male and female. See, marriage isn't my institution. It's not your institution. It's not society's institution. It's God's institution. And so it doesn't matter what the laws are. If we want to honor God, we have to say, okay, marriage is between a man and a woman. So start to examine in your own life how much have we and our kids and our grandkids been indoctrinated by the world's message? Is there hope? Absolutely. What do we do? Whenever there's a move of God throughout church history, the people of God get back to the word of God. And the word of God is their authority. And they start saying, God loves me and God knows best and I want to live my life according to God's word. You don't have to take my word for it. I hope you don't. I hope you read God's word for yourself. Read 
Genesis 1 and 2 for yourself and decide for yourself what you believe about creation, what you believe about marriage. Study the gospel. Study what the Bible says and how a person is saved and form your own, own belief. But we can't just go along with the world system because we'll find ourselves very clearly indoctrinated. For me, this in Daniel chapter 1 is the clearest example of how the world indoctrinates people, no matter the age. No matter the age. And we go on in verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four young men taken captive. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Hebrews named their kids based off the meaning of the name. How do we choose names for our kids? How the name sounds? Oh, this would be a brutal name for them to have. They'll get teased so bad on the playground. We can't choose that name, right? But the name for the Hebrew children have everything to do with identity. So why is it that when they get to Babylon, they change their names? They wanted their identity. Consider this. The world wants your identity. The world wants your identity. See what these names mean. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Great name to give your son. You're accountable to God. God is your judge. Well, Belshazzar means Bel's prince, false god. You belong to prince. They want Daniel to forget about God, the one true living God, and go into idolatry. The name Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. How great is that? You're loved by God. Little man, you're loved by God. What do they change his name to? Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. What a gross downgrade. You know, you're, you're lit up by the sun, not the one true living God. The name Mishael, meaning who is, who is as God, who is like God. Meshach means who is like Venus. You see how they're changing things. Azariah, the Lord is my help. Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. Church, the world, Satan, is after your identity. And we're so asleep spiritually, we're handing it over. We're saying, here goes my identity. The world's saying this, you are what you accomplish. So everything is about your college education. Where'd you go to school? How many letters can you get behind your name so that you can earn this amount of money? If you play the game well, then you're somebody. But if you don't play the game well, you're nobody. Now, is there anything wrong with education? Should you pursue education if God is leading you to? Absolutely. But it's a terrible place for your identity to be found. What happens if you don't make it through school? What happens if you don't get the job that's promised to you? What happens if all you get is a bunch of student loans after the whole process that nobody wants to talk about, right? Now, nothing wrong with education, but that's a terrible place to try to find your identity. Well, okay, identity's also found in what you possess. So you've got a nice house, you've got a nice car, you can afford a a great vacation in some tropical location. Well, that's a terrible place to have the source of your identity, right? 
What happens when the house starts to age and it's not the cool neighborhood anymore and it starts to go downhill and you can't keep up with that standard of living and your car's not so nice anymore? What happens when you're taking vacation on Pueblo's river walk instead of the tropical location, right? (laughs) Your identity, right? It's not found in what you have. It's not found in what you possess. Our identity is also told it's how we look. We're such a look-based culture in society. Young people are feeling like, I've got to look like this, you know? No matter the age, that, that affects us. We're comparing ourselves to what we see in movies and on TV, not the internet, magazines. It's not even real. You ever heard of Photoshop? Like, they take a picture and then they Photoshop that person to look like something that's not even humanly possible. Anatomically, they know the old Barbie dolls is not even possible for a woman's body to look like that. And you got these little girls playing with Barbie dolls thinking, I'm going to look like that someday. No, you're not. It isn't even physically possible, right? Our identity has to be found more than in what we look What other people think about us, social media. I'm feeling really good because I made a post and I got a lot of likes. (laughs) I made another post and I didn't get any likes, you know. I got a lot of friends on Facebook. I got a lot of followers on Facebook. I don't have any followers on, on Facebook. That's a big deal. It messes with people's heads, doesn't it? Our identity is found in the fact that we're created by God. Where he says... To us, you are made in my image. You have value because Jesus died for you. You're so valuable to God that he sent his son to die upon the cross for you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I think the world's winning this argument, even with God's people. How many days do we go through really enjoying our identity in the Lord that's secured in our heavenly father? John the disciple, he figured it out when he wrote the Gospel of John. He never refers to his accomplishments. He never refers to his possessions. How many people God allowed him to lead to the Lord or the churches that he started or how many followers he had on Twitter. He just put the disciple whom Jesus loves. That doesn't change. That's real. Whether you're hanging out in Pueblo or you're hanging out in some tropical location, That's real whether you've got a PhD or a GED. That is the true source of our identity. Don't let Satan take your identity. Don't let your name be changed. Parents and grandparents, we need to continue to instill in our kids your love by God. Your identity is not found by what you can accomplish on a field. Yeah, enjoy sports, play it to the glory of God, but that's not the source of of your identity. Your identity is found in the fact that you're loved by the Lord. What I love about this is they got their names changed, these four young men, but their identity didn't change. And they go through this ungodly culture and Babylon doesn't affect them, but they impact Babylon for God's glory in a way that's not even humanly possible. The Lord takes these four young men and uses them to impact Nebuchadnezzar and others. And that's the last thing I want to mention this morning, and it's this. God never stops working. 
God never stops working. Israel sinned, they've rebelled, they're experiencing God's correction, but in the midst of that, God's like, even in your captivity, I'm going to use it for my glory. I'm raising up a Daniel. I'm raising up a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their lives, these four men, their lives are an example of Romans 12, 1 and 2, long before Paul ever wrote it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 might ring a bell. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. These four men were living sacrifices, completely devoted to the Lord. They chose to not be conformed to the world's mold. College students, you don't have to be conformed. High school students, you don't have to be conformed. As you're living this life with friends and neighbors in your jobs, we don't have to be conformed to the world's image, but we can be transformed. If you get the message of Romans 12, something's going to be influencing you. It's the world or the word. Both have power for influence. The world's going to squeeze you into its mold, but the word of God's going to transform you. Are you going to know what the good and the perfect will of God is? As Israel is being taken captive, Jeremiah speaks this to them. Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, that of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Even in the midst of God's correction, there was a future and a hope. And maybe you're experiencing God's discipline in your life and you tend to think God's condemned you. No, this is evidence of the fact that you're God's child, that you're experiencing his correction. And even in the midst of the correction, he's got a future and a hope. We tend to look at our culture, we go, oh, it's too far gone. We tend to look at our country with hopelessness. But I believe that God's wanting to raise up Daniels of all ages. He's saying it's time. It's time. We're praying that God would raise up Daniel-like youth out of our church, out of our high school and out of our college and junior high. What if there's a fourth grade girl or fourth grade boy that's over there this morning learning about Daniel? They're teaching Daniel in children's ministry as we're studying Daniel this morning and they're saying, I'm gonna be fully devoted to God. God's able to take an individual that sold out to him and used them for his glory. Second Chronicles 16.9 says that God has binoculars. He goes through the world looking. He's, his eyes are going to and fro every day. And he's looking for one person whose heart is loyal to him that he can show himself strong through them. That's Daniel. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We tend to think God's, God needs a, a mass of people. He needs a multitude of people. He needs thousands and hundreds of thousands. And God's like, no, I'll take four young men. I'll take four teenagers that are sold out to me, whose heart's committed to me, and I'll use them to impact an entire world kingdom like Babylon. Application for us this morning, first is God's correction is very real. God's correction is very real. Don't underestimate it. 
I think it's sobering if we read this for the children of Israel. If God loved them enough to take them out of the promised land, to allow the temple to be destroyed, for Jerusalem to be destroyed, God in his love will bring correction in our lives as well. It's evidence of his love. It's evidence of his love. Understand the world's agenda. It's very real. It's very palatable. There's a war that is going on and taking place. Daniel was there. He was living it. He understood it. He didn't get overwhelmed by it. He kept his eyes on the Lord, kept serving the Lord, kept following the Lord. But if we're not aware of it, we're going to find ourselves just sucked up in its stream and then finally live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. You've heard me say it. You've heard other pastors say it. The problem with being a living sacrifice is we crawl off the altar, don't we? There's something about daily surrender to God. God, here's my eyes. Here's my ears. Here's my mouth. Here's my hands. Here's my feet. Rejecting the world's mold, getting into God's word, meditating upon God's word, allowing our mind to be be renewed. And God will use you for his glory. I believe that it's time for us as God's people to not live the same as the world. Not because we're better or out of condemnation, but because Christ is in our life. And today may be the day that you need to come back to the Lord. Maybe in a lot of ways, Sunday mornings is just a tradition. It's just a box to check off. And we have every intention to leave here and live our lives for ourselves. And it looks just like somebody who doesn't know the Lord. If we were to walk the streets of Jerusalem prior to this, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Jerusalem and Nineveh, Jerusalem and Babylon. And sometimes I think if we're honest, if somebody who was objective who looked at our lives from an outside perspective and they followed our work, our week, and they followed the, a week of a person who was totally against God, they go, there's no difference. And God's saying, I'm tired of my people's lives looking the same way as those that reject me. See, God's most concerned with his church, with his people, with, with his bride. And so because of that, we have the opportunity to come back to the Lord in brokenness and repentance. God never turns away a broken sinner. And how much is it going to take? If you know God, know Christ is your Savior and he's your Lord, and you're living in sexual sin, and you have no intention of changing, today, may God get a hold of your heart and life, and may you come back to the Lord. You're married and you're sleeping around with somebody who's not your spouse. You're flirting with someone who's not your spouse. Man, come back to the Lord. First and foremost, it's not an issue with your spouse. It's an issue with the Lord. It's it's a worship issue. You're single and you're sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're in sexual sin and you're like, you know what? God seems to be blessing my life anyway. No, God wants all of you. And would you come back to the Lord? Does a relationship with the Lord mean enough To say, I'm not going to live in sexual sin anymore. Is pornography dominating your life? 
And the Lord's saying, look, this, this is the very same as an unbeliever, and today God wants you to come, come back to him. Maybe it's a homosexual relationship, a lesbian relationship, and you've tried to justify it. You've found the messages that have said, hey, God's okay with this, and God blesses this as long as you're just committed to each other. And again, I don't say this out of condemnation or to beat anybody up. I want God's best for you. To be able to say, today's the day I'm coming back to the Lord and I'm going to accept God's design. And I'm going to acknowledge that this is the way that God desires for sexuality to be expressed. Maybe it's this issue of marijuana. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's biblical. Do you think God really wants us as his people to go through our days stoned out of our minds on marijuana? Is that an attack by the world system to just numb us to death? We don't really care what happens. I think God's got a greater existence for us, don't you? And he loves you and he's saying, you know, it's time to lay this down. It's time to be a living sacrifice. I just can't see Daniel as a 16-year-old guy smoking pot all the time, believing that God was going to use his life. Like, that's not what it was. So if you want God to use your life, say, I don't need pot in my life. Maybe it's alcohol and it's drunkenness and that's how you get through life. And the Lord's saying, man, I got something better for you. Maybe we look at our lives and we go, you know, it's not these areas of gross rebellion, but I can't say I'm serving God. I can't say I'm excited about the Lord. I've just figured out outward morality. You know, but my heart, there's adultery in my heart. There's anger in my heart. There's covetousness in my heart. I don't have a heart for people anymore. The Lord knows us. Did you know there was two prodigals in the story of the prodigal son? You have the prodigal that went and lived in the pigsty who was that outwardly rebellious, but then you have the older brother who was squeaky clean on the outside, but his heart was just as wrong. To where when the younger brother comes back and gets the huge celebration from dad, the older brother is mad. He's bitter. He's like, I can't believe that you just threw down on the younger brother. And he needed to come back to the Lord as well. So as we sing and as we worship, there's gonna be a ministry team here in the front And if you know you need to come back to the Lord, respond. Get up out of your chair, come down, allow somebody on the ministry team to pray with you. I honestly believe at different points in our relationship with the Lord, we're all gonna need to come back to the Lord. And why wait? I think you're hungry for more. I think you're hungry for deeper intimacy with God again. I think you're hungry to be used by God. You want this to be more than just Sunday morning. You want your days to be filled with purpose. Come back to the Lord. God blesses humility. Allow someone to pray with you. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody and you turn to them and you say, would you pray with me? I need to come back to the Lord. I don't, I don't like the condition of my heart. And God in his love and his grace will meet us in that place of restoration. Maybe you need to get saved this morning. You need to receive Christ as your savior. It's just been going to church. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God sent his son to die for sinners, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
The Bible calls us to turn from sin, to repent from sin, change of mind and change of direction, to believe that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again and ask him to be the Lord of our life, which means I realize I can't be in control of my life anymore. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And God says, I'm gonna then give you salvation. The Spirit of God's gonna come live inside of you and begin a relationship where God changes you on the inside out. So would you stand with me and let's pray and enter into this time of responding to the Lord. Father, we acknowledge that this is a heavy message. It causes us to look at things that we're uncomfortable with. Lord, but we know that you're good and that you love us. And Father, would you draw us back to yourself as your people, as your church, We've been caught up in things that we should have never gone to, but yet we know that you're asking us to come back. And this time of worship may be a a deep time of being restored in fellowship with you. For those that don't know you, may they have the courage to turn to you and humble themselves and ask and believe for salvation. But we do ask by your grace and by your mercy that our lives could Be like Daniel. Be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know we live in an ungodly culture. We don't want to be overcome with the world's system, but we want to be overcome with you. So would you be gracious to us? We pray over our youth, from the youngest to the college age. Lord, such an attack upon them. And we we ask, Lord, that you would move and your spirit would move and you'd raise up Daniel-like youth. So we love you and we thank you.